Welcome to the C Word, the conservative podcast. Today we're talking about how to conference. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, Objects Conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an Objects Conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rosek, an Objects Conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Hello ladies, welcome Hi. to episode 9. What? That I know, right? First of all, does anyone have any news? Uh, I was just going to mention this because people have been tweeting at us about there have been some strong reactions in the conservation community so strong. to a video <laughs> on Twitter by art dealer Philip Mould, who hosts the BBC TV show Fake or Fortune. And it shows someone glopping on a gel-like substance <laughs> directly onto a 17th century painting and scrubbing it away with a brush uh, to reveal the colours underneath the yellowed varnish. It got about 65,000 retweets before it was taken down. And uh, the ongoing suspicion is that it was taken down because of the complete outrage in the conservation community Mm -hmm. where everyone started going, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) That's what I understood that it was. Glopping Uh, is a fantastic word. (laughs) And I couldn't watch it for longer than about 20 seconds. And I had the sound off. Uh, I mean, it's dramatic. It's certainly a dramatic change. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't just glopping, it was dribbling yeah, as well. It was. And it was properly Also, scrubbing. Yeah. I mean, if, if you haven't watched it with the sound on yeah, and I've you heard, find yeah. a there, copy of it somewhere, yeah. and there will be loads of copies of it around, because the trouble is, even though it's been taken down off Twitter, it's already gone on to loads of these oh, yeah. sorts of. Yeah, um, you can find kind it. Of and, you know, Buzzfeed type. <laughs> it, it went, it went sites. properly um, viral, properly. Yeah. I yeah. heard the stories of the sound which is why i chose to watch it with the sound off because i thought it would make me no so don't don't. yeah it's like (laughs) kind of sound i hope that came across as but yeah so uh, it's it's fair to say that the conservation community was not happy about this obviously thoughts didn't we obviously more on the art conservation side because paintings conservatives were of course more upset by this because it's it's very much kind of their job that video is misrepresenting but it doesn't take that higher degree of knowledge to be able to see that there's a problem with it it's not like you can watch it thinking this is what conservatives do because if you have any idea at all then you can watch it think holy sh- what you're doing well <laughs> oh, please don't i mean i think the real worry is that the kind of average person yeah has has very little idea i mean doesn't even know that it's a job so it is very damaging in terms of people seeing this as as conservation mm. that's really bad i love that we don't seem to know who this person actually was because it isn't mr mold uh, who is doing this i actually it's, saw it's someone he's hired i saw allegedly. a thread um, well i think that, that there is yeah <laughs> it's probably uh, convenient for the being sensitive on the podcast thing and not giving anyone's identity that i just simply can't remember any of the details of no, anybody's no, no, identity no. so basically we don't anecdote. know yeah and i kind of don't care i feel like that person has probably felt bad enough about this i would yes, imagine given, given I the reaction see, i saw a facebook thread of the studio mm-hmm. replying to the the fuss essentially mm-hmm. um saying this video has been removed but it's was done by our decades experienced restorer mm. person and it was the result of a meticulously planned and tested etc and it was totally under control and blah 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 and basically the conservatives just replied saying 
you know it wasn't though was yeah. it <laughs> and and people saying it wasn't about the yeah the gel's fine it's the manner of the gel and the quantity of the gel and all of the other things there have been the like, features that weren't addressed in yeah the, the comeback so yeah oh, there have been a lot of actually really well worded responses uh, a lot of articles have now been written in response to this about using gels on paintings mm-hmm. and how to best remove it and all that stuff and uh, even how to how to establish if it's even if it's even an appropriate way to go for example mm. so i feel like good things have come out of this in that yeah. people have had an opportunity to write something constructive and nice and you know well thought through in response to it i i think a couple of things made me uncomfortable about it one was the sort of witch hunt almost that was launched in the immediate aftermath when lots of people saw it and had this very visceral reaction to it and were really uh, angry yeah it was quite animalistic about, in the way people um, how it, yeah and, and there were people trying to track down who it was and name and shame this person and threatening to write to this person's professional body and get them expelled or disciplined and so on and mm. and it, there was a bit of a sort of you know people did pile in like that and i feel a bit uncomfortable about that because i think we've all made treatment decisions where we feel that we've come to the best decision that we can knowing mm. everything with with the knowledge that we have available to us and the skills and the resources sometimes that you have and yeah. Yeah, no, sometimes you might also feel as well that these wouldn't necessarily stand up to scrutiny from outside or that you know other that you would be happy to defend them but that other people wouldn't feel that these were the best treatment decisions and so on and i think that sort of slightly kind of pack mentality where you can say okay we can just like all pile in and, and condemn someone like that for their treatment decision i do feel sort of slightly undermines the particularly with no kind of discussion or right to reply i wonder if that undermines our status as independent professionals slightly in that the whole point about conservation is that we're not following a rule book it's not like he's broken any rules the person who did this because there aren't any rules you know we're, we're all just out there trying to make the True, best decisions yeah, yeah. that we can so i think i think that which is not to defend the, the video itself no no, no. but i think the no, video really the video and make. its presentation is is slightly separate from the treatment the other thing that made me really sad actually rather than uncomfortable is the damage that i think it's done to conservators in the eyes of art historians who tend to because I've seen a lot of comment in art history groups and so on from art historians. And unfortunately, they, it, it, for some of them, it just confirms how they feel about conservators in the first place. A lot of them are quite skeptical about conservation and have a very uneasy relationship with conservators. And a lot of them feel that conservators can be quite arrogant and can carry out risky and damaging treatments. And art historians tend to be quite a lot more conservative about this. And there's been any number of very high profile cleaning controversies that kind of show that. Yeah. But I feel, unfortunately, for some people, this, it, it has confirmed in their eyes that this is how conservators operate you know they're all a bit gung-ho and risky and they destroy artworks Mm. in the name of cleaning and treatment um and you know removing original varnish and potentially original paint there was a bit of discussion about whether this particular lady's eyebrows looked different after the cleaning so I, i think that's really sad it's not just done damage to our image in among people who don't really know about conservation in the first place but also in the eyes of people who do know about conservation and have to work with conservators Mm. i mean i feel like this person may not even have been aware of what this film was going to be when it happened because i mean 
the way the film was edited and cut and stuff and later it's had text superimposed on it and stuff like that it's you know it's been sensationalized mm. so it's like oh my god you can't believe what happens next you know it's almost clickbait levels mm. yeah. of pimping this video and that's possibly the more disgusting bit where it's being used as a not even a pr tool it's being used as as clickbait basically and it's it's kind of gross but but then we, we do encounter this uh, every now and then much like uh, that other thing that went viral a few more months ago which was uh, like handy restoration tips for the whole whatever <laughs> it was that featured on things like buzzfeed and instagram and that then uh, dig it with raven did a debunking series of videos on youtube on which we'll link you to in the description because they are jolly good where they actually tested these things basically people tweeted us with uh, questions like should should the profession respond to this sort of thing should we just sit, signal boost the positive articles that come out of it rather than try to kind of gang up on on this one piece of media is it, is it more about informing people and less about punishing the person hmm. uh, yeah because well, no i one died did they so no exactly like, <laughs> like, okay i yeah i feel like I feel like everyone, of course, entitled to be upset about it if they want to be. That's fine. But I, I do feel like maybe it's more about spreading spreading the awareness that actually this isn't how conservation always looks. It looks like this. Not everyone will do it like this. Uh, mm-hmm. And just kind of try to put a more positive spin on it. Mm. Yeah. Nicely summed up. <laughs> so since this is an episode about conferencing, if there are any conferences coming up and you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I wish they'd talked about our upcoming conference or something, tweet us and we can uh, signal boost you. We can retweet uh, your conference or your call for papers or whatever. Obviously, we in the previous previous episode did put out a call for papers for the textiles group, for example. So um, yeah, just just get in touch and, and we can do that for you. Right. So today we're talking about how to conference, and I feel like uh, we'll talk about about conferences in general, but more about how to get the most out of it. But I thought I'd start us off with the question: of What makes a good conference? What is a good conference to you guys? what's what's a nice what's a nice outcome of one i think i'm the so the the three of us i feel that we fulfill different roles in this discussion because there's <laughs> there's there's jenny is very keen on going to a lot of different types of conferences and active in the community and you make me sound like some sort of a social butterfly here. yeah <laughs> Sort of exactly. More like I a mean, social like... bumblebee. You know? I'm not very graceful. Not very but good at it. Everybody loves you. <laughs> um, Some people mistake me for a wasp. <laughs> this got weird. Sorry. Uh, and and Christina, you attended a lot of conferences. You've spoken at a lot of conferences. You've, in fact, I think you've both held conferences. Well, organised one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've organised a mean, couple. You've yeah. definitely done more than me, Christina. But uh, but yeah, but yeah. we we were on the same team doing. Yeah, that, yeah. exactly. Uh, and I um, have sort. Of, I've been to. You've been to a them. couple. <laughs> You're uh, looking at me with a face of. Well, I I don't go to conference. You well, do I though. Sort of, I have you been do. to a few, but I've sort of because I was an emerging professional for a very long time. I mm. sort of took the stand of I can't afford this, and I'm going to have to wait until an employer will pay for me to go because I did try and get funding on a number of occasions it didn't work probably because my funding applications were crap and I just was too young to know what they actually wanted me to say um, or didn't try hard enough or whatever it was and the uh, positions of um, only recently an employer has actually been actually willing to pay for me to do things like this so I've sort of 
kind of thought, well, it's not for my time. It's not my time to come to go to conferences as much as I'd like to because I can't afford to. It's too expensive. Blah blah blah, and went a bit, you know, arsy with it. Essentially, uh, oh, I don't uh, go. No, but I think so, that's a completely valid thing <laughs> to expect your employer to be able to chip in. I think that's a completely valid stance. And perhaps one that more of us should take. Now, I am a bit more, a bit more of a martyr. Uh, I just kind of go, <laughs> oh, I'll just see if I can pay for this, or if I can go to the free yeah. bit, or if I can, if I can find some money somewhere, or if I can apply for this. So, because I, I really want to get out there. I'm, I, I really want to. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a complete knowledge whore, in that <laughs> I, I love learning. I love hearing from people, and sometimes the way to do that is good conferences. It's not always. There are so many ways to learn things, but it's just nice and uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm a solitary conservator yeah. so I sit alone in a lab and I don't have anyone to talk to so it's a chance for me to go out and meet other people as well which is really lovely uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I think because we have the different attitudes to it I, I feel sort of like my attitude to conferences is sort of guilty because I've been to one or two uh, conservation ones and two archaeology ones and so I know how I feel sort of the bigger conferences how I how how I would want them to be but not sort of I think essentially I feel that they should be interesting and cheap (laughs) but that's not really an answer so uh, I'll hand it over to you and Christina (laughs) those those are still criteria (laughs) interesting and cheap how about you Christina what do you think a good conference is I find I'm going to far fewer conferences than I used to, actually. And I'm, I'm actually not exactly a conference skeptic, but I'm finding it harder and harder to find conferences that I think I would want to pay to go to or ask my employer to go to. And I think that's partly because as I have been several times before, I'm on a, on a contract that's working on a very, very focused project. So understandably, you know, employers are reluctant to pay for you to go to conferences that are just of general interest because they want you to demonstrate that it's actually going to contribute towards this very specific project that you're working on. And so that's that's often been a problem in the past. And of course, conferences are very haphazard. Um, you know, what happens to come up at any one time just depends on who wants to organise conference on that topic. It's not that there's a sort of planned programme of subjects or, or even that, you know, particular topic is going to come about on a regular basis. So uh, apart from everything else, a lot of conferences are just irrelevant to me anything about paintings or paper conservation or whatever even if I think they might be interesting I just cannot justify um, the time or the money on it I also have been to a few quite mediocre conferences and that's kind of put (laughs) they're not all great yeah but that's kind of put me off the whole thing as well this is this is interesting then what makes a mediocre conference is it just that the subjects aren't relevant or is it is it more than that? No, it's more than that. I think a lot of conferences have a lot of very low quality papers in them, um, which is mm-hmm. a big problem with conferences. I've edited three volumes of conference papers as well. And it's wow. interesting what? to see. You're like a veteran. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, but it's, it's it, conference papers are very different beast from journal articles, for example. So the vast majority of conferences, the papers in them are not peer reviewed. You'll be asked if you're giving a paper at a conference, you'll be asked to submit an abstract of maybe a couple of hundred words at most, um, or some sort of proposal, and that's Mm. it. And the papers are accepted on the basis of that 200 word 
abstract and quite often people especially if you're asked to submit the abstracts quite far in advance what you'll find is that people are in the middle of the work that they're actually hoping to present on and they'll send in an abstract that's quite hopeful (laughs) and that promises a lot of things that actually by the time the conference happens just haven't for whatever reason come to fruition and so i've seen quite a few sort of quite thin conference papers where people are doing basically an interesting project but the conference has come a bit too early in that project for them to be able to say anything quite conclusive or interesting about it or else you know at the point when they submitted their abstract it looked like it was going to be a really interesting proposal interesting project and in in the event things haven't worked out that way maybe they ran out of money maybe the treatment didn't go as intended but they're committed to actually giving a paper about it and i still think there are interesting things mm. you can say about failed projects failed treatments things that don't go the way that you wanted but i think that's one of the most frustrating things about conferences is when the abstracts promise an awful lot that just doesn't get delivered as i said the papers are not peer reviewed um, except for the very biggest conferences like the iic biennial congresses or whatever they call them the iic ones um where there's a very large technical panel who read them and where people are expected to submit the papers in advance of the conference but that's very rare but i just i'm just a bit sort of cautious about the the quality of some of the things that i've seen in conferences that sounds really negative sorry (laughs) no no. Uh, so do you feel that the problem kind of starts with the submission of papers or the, the call for papers or do you think it's more in how things are chosen or the time that's dedicated yeah to the tr- <laughs> stages of it so the, what, how do you how do you feel it could be i suppose improved well i mean to some extent it can't be improved because they it's it's just a very different kind of thing and there's no point trying to turn it into something it's not having said that i think there are kind of structural problems with conferences which is that sometimes the call for papers is not very long so people don't have very long to develop their ideas so they kind of just stick in a proposal without really thinking about it and sometimes uh, and often when they're going to be published afterwards people are <laughs> I, I know this from having edited conference proceedings as well that it is an absolute bloody nightmare trying to get the papers out of people after the conference has already happened because most people are geared up to doing the actual presentation and the published bit is very much secondary to that. So they, they kind of screw themselves up to do this presentation and they do it and then they feel really relieved that that's all over. Then they don't really give a toss about the written bit afterwards and it can be <laughs> impossible trying to get the papers out of people. And quite often what people will do is send their presentation script. And the trouble with that is that that is very much oh, not see. a paper. So apart from the fact that you end up mm-hmm. with idiocy like as you can see on this slide which is obviously completely meaningless in a publication the publication ought to be an opportunity for you to go back and put in some of the detail and the references and to kind of bulletproof it and, and put in all of that kind of extra information that you don't have time for or that it just isn't appropriate to give in a 20 minute presentation but i think very few people are willing to put that amount of effort in once they've actually done the presentation and and i mean fair enough i mean i think to a lot of people the point of a conference is the presentation rather than the publication afterwards but unfortunately the publication is the bit that endures and that is the record of it and that allows Mm. other people who weren't at that conference to see what you said so i think until we have more conferences being videoed and put on youtube or whatever then we are going to be dependent on proceedings to give us this information but unfortunately a lot of the time it's quite difficult to get 
good papers after the conference. What do you think the the solution is then? But it, do you feel that the solution is rather than sort of closed doors by making everybody submit a fully fully completed paper? Do you think <laughs> just videoing or having a more multimedia approach to conferences would be a would be a good step? So I've been on both sides of the fence, and I've organised several conferences, and you're you're always desperate to get people to come and talk at your conference, um, and, and unless yeah. you do unless you're organizing one of the absolute top flight major conferences like AIC or ICOM CC or something, then you can't really afford to demand too much of the people who are presenting. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to kind of crap on conferences generally, because there are a number of good conferences. And I think often the ones that I find oh, yeah. valuable are the ones that are on a very focused subject, and often something quite kind of kind of niche. I mean, like I, I reviewed that book um, about the conservation of hair, which had um, yeah. which had come out of a conference that was held by Icon Ethnography Group. And I think that's an absolutely brilliant mm. subject for a conference, because there'll be loads to people who have got hair in their collections and won't necessarily have an idea mm. how to deal with it and there are n- there's no information out there at all and it's a really good way of bringing together people who have got experience at this slightly kind of random area of conservation and getting them to share information and so on so i think the very targeted conferences are helpful i'm a bit more wary about ones with very general or vague theme i, th- I feel like i personally i I kind of enjoy a combination because sometimes a really focused one, like you say, is amazing. So one that's all about wax yes. or one that's only about yeah. Egyptian coffins. It's amazing. It's It really is kind of a like a pressure cooker of good ideas. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I do still really enjoy going to like a really general one. But that's just because I, I kind of feel like I like knowing what other people are doing. I feel like I like feeling like I'm connecting with the larger body of knowledge mm. and stuff like that but i know that's just me and i know i'm a bit of a hippie like that so i <laughs> well it know, opens I, I, it up to different kind of perceptions of what different topics mean doesn't it speaking of going to really general conferences uh, i was recently at the museums association one in manchester mm-hmm. and we have a little bit of a survival log Yay. that i recorded as i was there and uh, here's the first bit now Right, oh, I'm not sure what the audio quality of this is going to be like because I am in a much noisier environment than we normally are. Today I am attending the Museums Association annual conference and exhibition in Manchester. And uh, I just thought I'd record a few snippets as I'm here because I kind of feel like nothing captures the moment of a conference better than saying something at the conference. Now, I'm not actually even here as a delegate because it costs a lot of money. But what the Museums Association is doing is they have a free schedule of workshops and an exhibition with loads of suppliers that runs alongside the conference. So even if you can't afford to go to the conference itself, you can go to these bits. That's something I really appreciate as someone who doesn't have the money. So basically, I've just found a kind of a quiet spot right now because... I find these sorts of events very, very intense. Um, so I like to find a quiet spot if at all possible. This is a large enough conference venue that I could actually do that. Ironically, I'm standing kind of with the catering staff go back and forth. So I'm sure I'm annoying them no end. But it was a quiet spot where I could curl up, have a spot to eat of my, I guess, thoughts so far. It's very busy, obviously. This is a big event and you get the entire museum sector coming. So it's quite full on. I'm not going to the talks, I'm certainly not giving any talks, but I really appreciate the range of free workshops that are going on for 
these two days. It's really full on program. It's really impressive. Um, I've really enjoyed the ones I've been to so far. I've even bumped into an old friend. And actually, that does bring me to a thing. Buddy up if you can. I know it might not be something from your insti- someone from your institution who can go. Because let's be fair, with workloads being what they are, normally you're lucky if one person can go to a conference or an event. Um, but basically, if you can buddy up, that's really helpful. Because we're going to different sessions. Um, because there are parallel sessions and that's a really common way to run things now so you get kind of the maximum amount of content into the time slots that you have so I would recommend buddying up so we're going to share notes afterwards about the different sessions that we missed but the other person went to so that's really helpful I think just if you're a bit like me and you're finding these sorts of events stressful and intense uh, it's a good idea to find a quiet spot like this um, where you can just have a little bit of decompression time. It's not as good as being alone in an office by yourself for a few hours, but it gives you that little bit of extra oomph. And I think that's uh, really worthwhile when you're trying to last an entire day, or in my case, two days. Um, but yeah, that's just my thoughts right now. It's lunchtime, and I'll see if I can record something this afternoon. That's the thing. If they, they seem very overwhelming to me. The ones that I've been to seemed sort of, there were so many things to choose. I thought, I, I, don't, I don't know. And then whilst I was at one, I was thinking, oh, should I be at the other, other, other talk? And it oh, is, what am I doing? It is weird and conflicting. I mean, the big ones. Oh, I, this is, of course, a thing that you have different scales of conferences. You have like half day conferences, you have full day ones. And then you have ones that go on for two or three mm. days. And mm. They are very different. The shorter ones are easier to survive. (laughs) And the longer ones are more of a journey. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But yeah, so the big ones, they are a bit, they are more overwhelming. It's like the Icon one, the Triennial one, has so many parallel sessions and I want to be in at least four out of the five. Mm -hmm. And that's impossible. So again, if you can exchange notes with anyone afterwards, you're lucky to begin with. But you it's also amazing so maybe this is where videoing things and putting them on youtube is actually really helpful i do know of loads of conferences that do do it i'm thinking of uh, museum computer network uh, which is an american network uh, of museum tech talks they always put theirs on uh, youtube in some shape way or form as you would expect of a tech conference really wouldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. you but <laughs> at the same time i feel like that's so helpful and the Museums Association did live stream a couple of their mm. like keynotes and some of the really major panel discussions. So not all the little talks. I mean, so if you paid, you didn't feel like you mm-hmm. you didn't get value for your money, if you see what I mean. They weren't giving away all of the content for free. But you did still um, get a bit more outreach so people could watch even if they couldn't make it there. Yeah, I mean... Uh, some bits at least. This is something I wish more conferences did, actually. More conservation conferences. But it's something that conservation conferences seem very, very reluctant to do. And I wonder if, again, it's part of that fear of exposing what we do to a wider gaze because a lot of conferences are quite heavy on case studies and details of practical treatment and so on and so I can Mm. understand that people might not feel happy necessarily about having that videoed to you know complete with all their slides and details of treatment and every single bit of information about that some people you you know what that makes me think of well that makes me think of uh, I feel like there's a I feel like there's kind of almost pay-per-view 
opportunity here where maybe you can pay a couple of quid to see one talk or to get access to mm-hmm. one talk because it's the one that you needed to go to uh, in the conference. Yeah. Like, I feel like there must be a system for that. And that, that way you narrow the amount mm-hmm. of exposure. I mean, you, you know who sees it. They can share it with other people. So it's not, oh my God, YouTube, the entire mm. world. It's... Uh, it's more like paying for a conference paper, mm-hmm. uh, which you do anyway. We do that anyway. So wh- why does that not exist for video formats? I feel like there's so much scope for development. Well, actually, this is another gripe. Uh, and I was... That, that, that's me being a tech nerd again. <laughs> when you say paying for conference papers, which we do. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> well, I was talking to a colleague about this theme. And she said to me, do you know, when I first started going to conferences, which was about 10 years ago, I think, um, you used to get a copy of the proceedings for free all the delegates did I mean it might be several months afterwards or whatever but she she reckoned that when she first started going to conferences it used to be the norm that the delegates would get a free copy of the proceedings and now it seems to be more and more the case that they're being asked to pay for them and that nobody's mm. getting it for free so that's I'm just throwing that out there I don't know if that yeah. sort of chimes with anybody else's experiences I mean thinking about it I think and this is purely anecdotal so I don't have any data to back this up <laughs> whatsoever but I think I do agree and I think you do possibly get less and I think it's also the case that fewer conferences are being published afterwards which I think is a huge shame it seems to me and again (laughs) this is purely anecdotal so I could just be talking out of my skin but it seems (laughs) does seem to me that conferences are more expensive even allowing for inflation than they used to be yeah conference fees are quite high I've also noticed this hearing things through the grapevine it's less now about meeting your costs and more about making a profit because more and more th- organizations trying to really? do this ah. sort of thing is now trying to make profit on top. And that's that's another reason why things are going up. I have quite strong feelings against that <laughs> as someone who's a povo. <laughs> it's like, I know they want to make money, but can we keep it down, please? <laughs> yeah. So here's my third bit of anecdotal... <laughs> <laughs> evidence or not evidence Go. observation um which is that the last couple of conferences i've spoken at i've had to pay a delegate fee albeit a reduced one. Oh yeah and i'm yep. sure mm-hmm. it used to be the case that speakers didn't have to pay um yes yes that is definitely true because this conversation has come up a lot in various ways <laughs> yes you are right previously people have even paid a very nominal fee or they paid no fee whatsoever because they were speaking mm. and now people are if they're lucky paying a reduced fee or paying the full whack i'm gonna tell you now i paid the full whack for being a conference speaker recently i, I paid wow. the full whack for speaking at icon that is something that i wanted to ask about so recently the problem of particularly with limited space conferences mm-hmm. the problem of having to apply for funding before you actually pay for a <laughs> oh, place yeah <laughs> and then by the time you've been you've had the funding a uh, grant approved approved mm-hmm. you've lost the place because there's there's no more places like, that seems like a really sort of yeah okay so there, there's, there are several things at play here first of all even if you granted a grant then mm-hmm. uh, you probably don't get that until you've been because you have to prove that you've actually gone oh, so dear. you're still gonna have yes. to 
find the money to pay them mm-hmm. even knowing that you're going to be paid back you now might be paid back yeah yeah that works for some people not for all mm-hmm. that's another problem so that's a cash flow issue mm-hmm. for people trying to attend these things sometimes conference uh, organizers can be a bit more lenient so they will say well we'll book this place and we'll mark it as to be paid if they mm-hmm. have a flexible booking system not mm-hmm. everyone does uh it's particularly if it's through things like eventbrite you have to pay or mm-hmm. you might get invoiced if you're very lucky mm. that sort of thing but it might be that they can reserve your place until you know that you're getting the funding and then if if, if, if it falls through they go to their waiting list because some people have waiting lists for conferences anyway <laughs> um uh, let's listen to to the second bit of my survival log uh, i'm a bit tired in this one but hey stay with it okay i'm here after day two um it's now the evening I'm sitting outside in the cold for a bit because I've collected my bags and my coat and all that stuff. I'm just having a little breather outside the conference venue. Uh, I'm about to walk over to uh, Chloe's house because that's where I'm staying. I'm just having um, a moment to decompress. Uh, It's been a really good day on reflection. I think it actually really picked up after lunch. I think it really helped that I refueled. I had a bit to eat. I'll be honest with you, it was a rubbish Sainsbury's sandwich and some crisps and apple juice because I was trying to be vaguely healthy. But then I followed it up with an energy drink because I've been awake since 4am. <laughs> um, so it's maybe not what I would consider a healthy lunch, but it was lunch and it helped me refuel. But then I know I'm very food dependent like that. So your mileage for it may vary. I feel like it really helped when I refueled because I ended up feeling braver. I got kind of tired of the fact that people don't really talk to you. There's a lot of waiting time in between talks, especially if you're staying in the room and uh, your neighboring people, they're not all that willing to talk to you. (laughs) I mean, no, that's not true. They're perfectly willing to talk to you, but you have to initiate contact. They're not going to do that for you. Initiate contact, turn around, make a funny remark about something or lean in and go, hello, where are you from? Just, Just do it. It really helped. I've actually made new friends. It's lovely. Yeah. And some unexpected ones as well. So uh, I would really, really, really recommend that. Be brave. Be be the one who awkwardly starts the conversation. It's okay if it doesn't go anywhere. Just let it go. You're about to listen to a talk anyway. So if it does go pear-shaped, you're going to be focusing on something else anyway. And chances are that person next to you will move for the next talk or you will move. So it's okay. Yeah, so I guess my pro tip at the end of the day is uh, be, be brave, initiate contact, talk to the person next to you. That's coming from someone who's quite socially awkward initially. So, uh, yeah. Conferences are what you make them, so make them great, basically. Anyway, I, I enjoyed my day. Uh, it was good. And uh, this ends rambly entry number two for day one of the Museums Association exhibition workshops and not quite conference. Thanks very much. You were so sleepy. You were so sleepy, but we had nice Chinese food and I was very proud of how many people you talked to. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I find that the scariest bit, the the room full of people yeah. thing yeah, it's... is really scary, especially for a newbie when you don't really have any you've, you've not got a badge that anyone rec- recognizes <laughs> yeah it's very embarrassing like, who are into- you no one important <laughs> yeah, hello to anybody at all where do you work i don't <laughs> so if the key is to kind of talk to people and engage contact maybe we should talk about networking and like mm-hmm. that there are different levels of networking and it's 
doesn't have to be scary it's okay just uh, just talking to people is okay and sometimes yeah sometimes that that can go as far as you know having a moan about i don't know inconsiderate collections managers together <laughs> and then wandering off or it can be oh my god i can't believe uh mm. we need the same kind of glass jars for our spirit specimens could you send me a link to mm-hmm. the ones you use because i don't know where to source them you know, it, yeah it, it can be all levels uh, and I think that's really crucial. And uh, I know, Christina, you've said in the past that speakers don't mind if you go talk mm-hmm. to them. That is true. Do go talk to them. But also talk to other people. I think it's uh, a really valuable opportunity to talk to even uh, the people in the room who feel like they're not important. Uh, or Because, like, mm-hmm. you know, chances are if you're like a really a veteran speaker, you, you're quite used to people coming up and talking to you. But if you're just there as a delegate, it might be that you still want to talk to people and it's a bit scary. It's just hook up, you know, <laughs> just uh, just, uh, just be nice to each other and have a nice time. It's a bit intimidating, but it's it, it's nice and it's worth it. It's so worth it. I think this is a point to say um, that conferences can be extremely valuable events for confidence and general networking as well as finding particular people that interest you or projects that interest you um as well as learning i've obviously been a bit down on them so far (laughs) but that's because there are obviously there are problems but they are so valuable and they are they are very uh popular because they're because they're valuable and because they offer an awful lot to different people and though i don't like it the networking thing is one of the most important things. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely spoken to people at conferences who I still remember now and who I think, oh, that was that really interesting project. And, oh, you know, genuinely looking forward to the next conference I go to for in my new, you know, slightly more advanced stage conservator <laughs> persona. <laughs> yeah, but, and you can generally make mm-hmm. new friends. So it might be that exactly. someone, someone works in the same town as you and you never knew that they existed. And uh, I don't know, you made a new friend. You know, things like that can happen as well. So uh, it's always, always worth talking to people, reaching out and, you know, trying to be buddies. I know it's not why everyone actually wants, but <laughs> give it a go. <laughs> Everyone's scared as well. Just try to talk to people. Do nice. we have some survival skills? We have, we have some um, notes, some advice from people, oh, yeah. don't we? So, uh, I asked some people in the museum sector if uh, they had some pro tips for going to conferences and making the most out of them. The the following are the replies that I got. Be nearest to the door so you're first in line for tea and lunch. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll spend the breaks in the queue instead of networking. Also, there will be no chocolate biscuits. <laughs> I really like that one because that's what I found when I was at the uh, Icon in 2013. Oh, yeah. There was, lunch, I, it was, there was such a long wait for lunch and I was thinking, do I eat or talk and obviously i wanted to eat instead but you know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's such a difficult yeah i i have to yeah, confess so. if there were no chocolate biscuits at icon 2013 it's probably because i'd eaten them all because i was seven <laughs> <laughs> i was seven months pregnant and ravenous all the time Oh well. <laughs> then you're allowed to eat all the chocolate biscuits so, sorry about that one <laughs> <laughs> that's fine i quite understand <laughs> that's great uh someone else said depending on the length of the conference be sure to give yourself enough time to recharge your social battery oh i can't agree more i like the that aic too. annual meeting is basically a week of non-stop activities which is really overwhelming if you push yourself oh yeah definitely be kind to yourself mm-hmm. these longer ones are it's a bit of a marathon really and uh yeah you, you need to be nice to yourself Actually, I might just slip in the third bit of my uh, conference survival log now, just so you can appreciate how incredibly knackered I am in this one. <laughs> Do it. 
Hello, uh, right, I am now back in the safety of my own home. I've just gotten off a train, the second train of the day, and as you can probably tell, I'm incredibly tired. <laughs> didn't actually have any time to record during the day today, partly because I was with a, a colleague and uh, I was I, I was trying to be extra awesome. Uh, basically, the second day of the conference, I'm still incredibly enjoyable. Uh, today... We kept going to a lot of the talks, although not as many. I wonder if we just, if there were less people today. I didn't feel like there was overall, but it was less crowded. People weren't sitting festival style. I don't remember if I mentioned that yesterday or not, but yesterday the talks were so oversubscribed that people were sitting on the floor, even up around the speakers, you know, cross-legged on the floor with all their bags around them because people really wanted to hear all, all these uh, free talks and the workshops and there just wasn't nearly enough seating space it was pretty impressive actually they could have done with their own auditorium but hey ho you work with what you got and today i felt less cramped i did not deliberately not go to one of the talks because we were a bit late because i got lost on the way to um <laughs> to the conference venue because i'm an idiot and um i'm not very good with directions and google maps kept crashing i'd get lost in a paper bag as i believe the expression goes anyway we were a bit late so obviously we couldn't make that first talk that i really wanted to go to and that one was so full that people were spilling into the surrounding exhibition area uh, so clearly they were very popular talks still um, but i think i ended up going to the slightly more i don't know if they were more niche not really but i they, they were, there were less people it was comfortable it was still a full room but it wasn't people sitting literally everywhere so uh, i feel like it was at the right level it didn't get weirdly stuffy and stuff like that uh today i was with a colleague and uh, together we accosted almost everyone <laughs> who was in the exhibition uh in the exhibition area so that's uh, people who had stalls uh, there was some great various suppliers there there were also some people who weren't there <coughs> modes <coughs> there were loads and loads of people obviously uh, not everything necessarily applied to to us because we're from the same workplace and it's it's a small museum we don't have the budget for fancy things but it was great talking to people and exchanging business cards yes i handed out some business cards um, I, I feel like i always always bring business cards and then don't use them <laughs> because i'm a bit shy and i'm like oh this feels a bit weird but actually it was relevant and it was really good and actually people were genuinely curious about what i do now and it's like oh thanks so if you do have business cards try to use them not in like a weird first contact kind of way but hello here's my business card let's talk now um if it's appropriate later in the conversation offer them one or as you're about to leave each other for the next talk like hey let's keep in touch um here's here's my details you know I'll, i hope to drop you an email so I guess that's one of my pro tips from the day really is deploy your business cards if, if at all possible. It's also odd how um, I feel like I was much braver talking to exhibitioners and suppliers uh, with a friend with me. Now, neither one of us are particularly socially brave. Uh, we are both typical museum reclusives. <laughs> I, I was astonished that together we just happily bumbled up to people and started a conversation. You are braver as a team. So again, I guess this is one of those buddying up systems. Uh, it's certainly difficult at an event of this scale, especially if you go into different talks and stuff. Now, we ended up going to the same talks, which uh, made the experience a bit easier so there was less getting lost and losing each other in a crowd 
uh, because the colleague that I met the other day, I obviously lost as soon as we weren't in the same room anymore. Uh, did find her again today, though. That was nice. So, yeah, um, if you can go as a team, that's really nice. Um, but at the same time, I also appreciate that loads of people think that it's probably quite nice to get out and see other people and not be with the people that they work with in, uh, all day anyway. It's not necessarily how I feel, but I, I can see how loads of people probably do <laughs> i did talk to a few people who did say yes my uh my so-and-so is here like my line manager is here or, so, or something like that and they said uh, yeah so uh, i'm really hoping not to bump into them and i thought well whatever um, you probably see them all the time anyway so i can see how this is about seeing other people and new experiences and stuff like that so um i can see that perspective as well but I'm just saying, buddy system totally works. Anyway, I picked up loads of loot. I got very excited about things. It was a really good experience. Really glad I went. Ultimately, the entire thing ended up costing me whatever I spent on lunch at nearby shops. And the 25 or so pounds that the train tick cost me. Would have been more if I couldn't stay with Chloe in Manchester. So thank you, Chloe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so basically, if, the, if there's any scope for you to go to another one, of these in the future i know next year they're in belfast which is a bit further for me certainly so i cannot imagine i will go if you can make it to one of the museums associations conference the free bits it's really worth it i would really recommend it not only because you can actually talk to suppliers face to face about the problems that you're having and i guess it's an opportunity to engage with people who manufacture things or supply things or um, have solutions but not the solution that you need it's just really good and sometimes it's really nice to see face-to-face uh, -face what people are actually doing because people will demonstrate their software or show you their display cases or give you an idea of a price even without a quote you know it's it's just kind of healthy to see what's out there uh, and it's really it's a good opportunity for that i have to say there was only one talk that bored me and i wish i could have gone to every single one uh, because they all looked interesting to me and i think that's the thing right you've you've managed to put together a program of stuff here that's free and looks really fascinating i mean well done well done to, any, to everyone thank you to everyone who spoke not that it's my place to thank anyone but um you know the awesome work if you happen to be listening to, to this and you were delivering one of the talks or workshops thank you it was great good work Round of applause to everyone. I kept all the applauding. I'm too tired. I'm now going now to go and eat pizza and fall asleep on the sofa because that is very much where my energy levels are at right now. Anyway, thank you so much. And I hope this little weird museum survival log has been useful to someone. Anyway, peace out. Anyway, after that, back to uh, pro tips from people. Someone else says, eat as much as possible <laughs> uh yeah that's that's fair enough if you have paid to be there the food is there to be eaten and uh presumably the leftovers will not be going to the conference organizers because normally the catering company takes them away again so oh, do they go on and eat <laughs> someone else says have fun and speak to nice people and then we have the kind of final pro tip which was check out what's in the area especially stuff like good coffee a place to get a drink to hang out to charge phones I wound up having coffee with everyone you've ever heard of at a WOWM conference because I knew where to get coffee with actual caffeine in it. <laughs> Since for some god unknown reason, the conference only served weak instant stuff. I kind of <laughs> love that story. That's great. Uh, I, I love the notion that you, you got to talk to everyone because you knew where to get coffee. <laughs> You'd hope any good conference would have decent coffee, but hey, not, not everyone's splurges on that stuff. Can I add another couple of pro tips? Because I... 
yeah. discussed this with my colleague as well in advance of this. And um, our top tips were wear layers because conference lecture halls are often inexplicably hot or inexplicably cold and you might find yourself kind of wanting to strip off a bit or alternatively... So yeah, true. layer up a bit. Um, and something like a sort of shawl or pashmina or whatever can be really, really useful. Wear flat shoes because uh, this is if you're female, but also if you're male, yes. if that's how you rock, um, because um, you might think that high heels look smarter and you might feel like you have to dress up and so on. But actually, there's an Conference awful lot of standing around. <laughs> I mean, there's an awful lot of sitting around, but there's also an awful lot of standing around in the coffee breaks yeah. and so on. And mm-hmm. it can be surprisingly hard on your feet, I think, because you're not actually walking. You're just kind of standing and then shuffling forwards in a queue and stuff like that. So wear comfortable shoes. Oh, and also, you don't have to be that smart. So you don't feel like you have to dress up in an uncomfortable tight suit or something like that. Just kind of be yourself. And... Another top tip, there's there's something about darkened lecture theatres that makes me instantly fall asleep. And so take a packet of... I'm glad I'm not just the only one. I thought I was just one of these really terribly, horribly uneducated. No, no, no. Boring Seriously, people. I could be sitting oh, through yeah. the most enthralling treatment ever and the most amazing conference talk and so on, but I'll still find my eyelids drooping. It's just something about the darkened room and the harsh and the comfortable seats. So, um, so take a packet of polos so that you can discreetly slip one into your mouth and kind of perk yourself up this was our top tip and um, my colleague said she's she's tried various things but she's decided that polos are best because they have the quietest wrappers (laughs) oh nice (laughs) I liked it not like having to kind of unwrap individual murray mints or humbugs or something like that but you know something kind of minty that'll pep you up so and take a bottle of water yes Definitely. Because you'll get really thirsty just from all that talking and sometimes air conditioning and stuff like that. Yeah, so I'm afraid our, our, our top tips were a bit more kind of... <laughs> no, that's great. I like that's fantastic. Practical. But. That, that kind of brings me on to um, what are essential things to bring to a conference? Essential things. Good pens. Like, I feel like no okay yeah, that's because okay. you love pens yes of though. course I'm I am I, I love stationery but I'm saying if 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 it's a pen that's comfortable to write with for a prolonged period of time that's good also bring pens plural because it, no matter how new it is it will run out in the middle of the talk in yes, which you want to make definitely. notes multiple pens and pens that you are comfortable writing with for a prolonged time a good notebook preferably a sturdy one because I feel like this really varies depending on conference venue Sometimes you get a conference venue which is in a proper lecture theatre and you've got uh, like a table or desk bit that you can write on. Sometimes you are stuck writing on your own lap and uh, then it's good to have like a sturdy kind of thick notebook that doesn't immediately flop uh, (laughs) as soon as you put a pen near it. Uh, So my pro tip there is definitely bring a good sturdy notebook. Can I ask the two who have organized conferences and I, I appreciate that we're running low on time but the two that have organ organized conferences can I ask you a few questions both yeah go for it so when you're setting up when you're starting when you're the very the the conception of the conference as it were <laughs> what what makes you think yeah let's do a conference on that is there a, a topic or do you think oh we should probably do a conference in a year or or is there is there what sparks it off oh okay that i feel like that depends so if you're in an organization so i'm thinking something like one of the icon groups it might be that it's an annual thing that you're doing or that you want something tacked onto your agm mm-hmm. so that's annual general meeting and 
so it might be that it's an annual thing and you always have to think of a different theme or something interesting that will draw people that sort okay. of thing yeah so uh, if it's more of a if you're not in an organization it might be that there's a topic that you really want to cover mm-hmm. and you found some other interested parties mm-hmm. that you know might want to join in with that yeah so do you uh, how do you set costs then both of you my second question do you um i'm assuming you seek funding either that either if that's just from your institution for setting it up or well mm, do you okay. have do you set costs with with the, a lack of funding in mind uh this will vary depending on the thing but the ones that I've been involved with it's been a case of right we need to hire a venue that's big enough and that meets all mm-hmm, of our requirements mm-hmm. that's usually the big cost that you need yeah, to actually yeah. meet and then on top of that is catering it costs a surprising mm-hmm. amount of money to uh, feed and water mm-hmm. x amount of people and mm-hmm. then again you have to think about how many people are we aiming to get to mm-hmm. the conference and that then sets the ticket price for how many you, you're aiming for that number so you can you kind of want to break even you want to break even even if you get a few too few Mm -hmm. but yeah venue and catering those are the really big ones i think the trouble is that there are some costs that are per capita like catering and things like tea and coffee in the breaks are are surprisingly expensive and can be something ridiculous like five pounds a head each time um but Yes, literally. Yeah, Yeah, and you'll get the choice between, say, the £8 sandwich platter, cold sandwich platter or whatever, or the £20 per head fork buffet, hot fork Mm. buffet and that kind of thing. And you've got to kind of, you know, decide what you think people will pay for, but also what they will expect for their money. But as I was saying, there are, there are these costs that are per capita that where, which directly scale up with the number of people. And and that might be things like catering, coffee, things like delegate packs and the cost of providing stuff to give to the delegates to take home and so on. And then there are also costs that are just fixed costs, like the cost of the venue, and which has to be divided by the number of people coming to the conference. And that's where there's an element of fudging really that comes into it (laughs) because you don't know how many people you're going to be dividing that between and so you just have to make your best guess guess at how many people might want to come to your conference and divide those costs between that number and then hope that that's enough people to pay for it does that make sense yeah Mm. so final question how do you get people to speak do you invite particular figures that you think are kind of key and interesting and potentially uh, influential for other people to come how do you go about it oh that's interesting because i've seen both done Mm -hmm. yeah really i've seen a mix so some are all call for papers so it's exclusively whoever whoever turns up in a way Mm -hmm. um and others are certainly a mix so there are a couple of cherry-picked people where these are the people who draw people or these are the people we really need to speak because they Mm -hmm. are the leading world expert Mm -hmm. on this Mm -hmm. we need them and uh, then anyone else who responds to a call for papers this is kind of something on top isn't it Mm -hmm. that's nice yeah i think um often conferences are more successful if they're there are some invited speakers because I think it it can result in a more balanced programme. Cool. Something we didn't mention, but I just want to squeeze in at the end here was pet peeves for venues. For me, the pet peeve of a venue is when there's no plan provided. Like there's no floor plan. I have no idea what the building looks like externally or internally. That's... (laughs) 
atrocious when that happens and you'd be surprised how difficult it can be to find some venue locations because it's it's not the main museum it's in or it's like oh it's in this office block just outside of town and it's just kind of another gray building amongst other gray buildings wow how am i supposed to find that you know like pictures banners signs and i do love when people share a floor plan beforehand but i say that as a slight access issue because it's one of those things that that museums are encouraged to do to increase access for uh, not just autistic um visitors but just in general people who feel a bit nervous about a new venue i'm gonna be honest with you i'm one of those people i'm nervous about a new venue mm-hmm. i would like a floor plan if at all possible and i don't want to have to ask for one i want it to just be provided hey here's the venue this is what you need to know about it. Just a little shout out to everyone who organizes the conference. Access is m- about more than a ramp yeah. and a disabled loo. Okay, so maybe we can just encourage people to be a bit more uh, relaxed when they come to your venue. Supply as much information as possible. Doesn't matter why they want it. Doesn't matter if they identify as disabled or if they feel that they're a bit on the autistic spectrum or if they're generally just a bit uncomfortable with going somewhere new. Just make it easy for them. Just supply it. Supply as much information as possible. And, you know, it's just available for everyone. It's just making it more accessible for everyone, really. Okay, and then just a final thing. Also bring snacks. Bring your own snacks to all conferences. All snacks. <laughs> Not noisy snacks, but I'm just saying don't rely purely on the tea and coffee being provided. If you're anything like me, I get ravenously packaged in the middle of a block of papers. I want to eat something right now, so I'm going to break out my protein <laughs> bar. This is happening. Um, yeah, so try to bring snacks and a bottle of water as well as all the other stuff that we mentioned. Oh, and hand wipes. That would be good. Because <laughs> you might not want to queue up for the loo just to wash your hands before you touch sandwiches. Just saying. Hey, and to bring your hand that. wipes in your bag. Hey. Yeah. See, See I'm thought- such a mum when it comes to packing my bag. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks. That's uh, everything from us on the topic of conferences. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you. Dear Jane, what is the most important skill a conservator should have? So, what is the most important skill? My first thoughts were perhaps the obvious answers. Making really tight joints, being able to do gap filling, colour matching. Really all the stuff around the fine motor skills. I was thinking what I really personally valued and it's things like being able to do pick and flick surface cleaning. But in reality, those are just things that are important to me and the sort of conservation that I've done. What we know is that conservation is so rarely standard that perhaps what we need is something that is a little bit more applicable to all disciplines of conservation. So perhaps the most important skill for conservator is the ability to gather evidence, to be able to pull information together, sift it, synthesize it, prioritize it and use it to make decisions. Sounds a bit teachy though. Is that really what conservators need more than anything else? Is this what they need to practice? I was thinking, okay, no, evidence is great, but where do you get the evidence from? Perhaps the most important skill for conservator is the ability to communicate. This is something that we can all do. We can learn about our objects and learn about the people we're working for and with. Find out what happened to those objects in the past. Find out what people want to do with them. and Where next those objects are going to travel. Communication. Probably one of the most important skills that most conservators would point to as something that we need to be able to work on. But I still wasn't quite satisfied with this as an answer. 
And so my final conclusion is, what is it the most important skill? What is it that conservatives need to be able to achieve? What do we have to be excellent at? And I've decided that it's we need to be excellent at curiosity. We don't just have to have it, we have to feed it. We have to develop our knowledge by being curious. We have to develop our skills of inquiry. We have to be excellent at being curious. If we practice finding joy from exploration and finding out the answers to questions, then I think we can be really great conservators. Over and out. Right, so for today's review, we have something a little bit unusual. The guys at Preservation Equipment, otherwise known as Pell, have sent us a selection of their various sponges and erasers and various types of cleaning materials for us to do a little review of. And uh, basically, Chloe and I are just going to sit here. We're going to touch them and talk about them, basically what's happening. Right, let's see what's first out of the bag. Ooh, here, have a thing. Uh, this is apparently an Acapad sensitive white sponge and dry cleaning powder. Oh, so not wish up. Okay. Basically what we've got here is we've got a sponge, which is half kind of soft and half coarse. It's blue and kind of off-white. This was formerly known as Wishab. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been designed for the cleaning of sensitive surfaces. So the white side is more for things like works of art on paper. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be pH neutral, safe for use on sensitive surfaces, basically. But I've heard a lot about Wishab sponges. But yeah, I'm same. Never actually used one Me myself. I so can... am I holding on to the, is the blue bits the... The grippy bits, The grippy maybe? bit. Yes. And I'm guessing I'd use it in smaller quantities than these sort of massive dishes. Well, they, they do kind of come in these kind of mm-hmm. uh, pre-perforated almost. Hey, so I wonder if, if what you can do is you can kind of separate these yeah, out somehow yeah. and use a smaller section. I mean, this just reminds me of a smoke sponge, which I already cut into little bits. Yes. Yeah. So I would expect it to be the same thing with mm-hmm. this, really. You do get kind of a very fine powder come off the, the mm-hmm. white sponge. Yeah. So it would leave a little bit uh, of residue, but off brushable stuff, if you see what I mean. It's more like a very fine dust. I've always been a bit dubious of this because I've heard it leaves bits and I hate anything that leaves bits. I see it. So you're not a fan of things that crumble. Yeah, Mm. so there's that. But looking at it and sort of fondling it, I feel like this is, this could be useful because it increases the surface area of cleaning. Yeah, yeah, well it's it it has a slightly rubbery feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, tacky and grippy. Yeah, you're right, grippy. That's that's a good one. I'd be interested to to hear from people who use Wishab sponge all the time Mm. and on what and what they feel the limitations are i think that much like with the smoke sponge i would expect it to lift off dirt yeah and i think that what comes off the sponge is very much little particles of the sponge uh, and then that you then brush yeah, that off yeah okay so i've just tried to get this stuff off my notebook mm. and i mean it's okay yeah and i'm not using suction <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah quite when we're, we're not but fancy I still i still don't i still wonder whether i'd need to use this yeah with mm. with a vat and i have a feeling this is this is a sort of two-step clean it does say here that they have a little quote saying that papers that are rubbed shaken and brushed contain no residue and therefore undergo no adverse effects Ooh. as the result of interaction with the product great and that's that's interesting so there, there are people who have looked into this clearly mm-hmm. it's a lot denser than uh say smoke sponge which is usually my go-to thing for a sponge it's a lot denser than i thought it would be yeah yeah so it's it has an interesting texture and feel to it and i i can see how it would probably perform quite well mm-hmm. um so for listeners who are curious about that i'm gonna try these and I, i'm probably gonna put it on youtube but i'm i'm gonna i'm not gonna try it on museum i'm gonna try it on my own stuff so uh uh but that will still give me an idea of how it works so uh, basically that's that's one of, that's one of my projects to do in the next couple of weeks so but so far i'm quite enjoying it they're quite heavy 
They're quite they heavy are. in your hand. Yeah, uh, it's kind of it's kind of dense. Um, There's a lot of matter to this. Yeah, isn't it's it's kind of it's kind of pleasing. Mm. It has a pleasing weight yeah. to it. Shall we look at the next thing? Yes, let's look at the next thing. Oh, what do we have here? Oh, next uh, we have something the- else that I would have called Wishab. Yeah. Okay. So this is apparently the Akapad Classics book, also formerly okay. Wishab. So uh, this is something okay. very similar looking. We have a feel. Uh, can can take Ooh-hoo-hoo. that out there. Oh. So this one, it's like wholemeal Wishab sponge. <laughs> It kind of is actually right. So this one looks incredibly similar to the to the other one in the hair. Has the blue core stuff on top, and then then three it has sections. Yeah, and then the same three sections underneath. But this time the spongy stuff is uh, some sort of orangey pink, and yeah, looks a bit more bitty. You know, yeah, but but not like in in a bad way. I'm not sure if it's coarser or not. Okay, so what, what we've got here is actually the extra hard sponge. So we oh, are right yes. that this is a little bit coarser. Okay, that's cool. Okay, so this comes in, in different... So it can be extra hard, it can be ultra hard, and it can be <laughs> soft. So if we consult the kind of documentation that comes with this, it says that the soft one, which is the one that we looked at before, particularly suitable for sensitive and structured surfaces, pictures, frescoes, murals, wallpaper, textile, as were this one, which is the extra hard is for kind of non-sensitive rougher surfaces walls mm-hmm. masonry I, this is intriguing because you know what I need something that cleans masonry <laughs> so, actually yeah that's that's really cool it looks very similar it has the same kind of weight and density to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so very similar it's like, like it's that. made in just the same way yeah I'm just going to break a bit off here and see if I can I'm just trying to separate so it's got a nice sort of stretchy oh yeah stretchy. that is quite so stretchy so it's, I see you trying to like peel off a chunk then. It's kind very, of very yeah. It's like very very concentrated smoke sponge. Yeah, like yeah. Smoke sponge, but with yeah, it's, no holes. It's, it's like a it's like a dense version of it. Really. It leaves bits though, you know. Yeah, it does leave bits. That's true. But then you just kind of brush that off, don't you? Okay, so that's that leaves the, bits uh, though. I mean, I would. I'm I'm happy to be. I'm happy to be uh, convinced otherwise. But you know, how do you get that out of a textile? You know. But would, I suppose te- okay. step one, don't use it on a textile. Yeah, I was going to say, well, why would you? Why would you use it on a textile? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking of problematic things. Right. What we've got now is our old favourite. Oh, oh. Uh, we are partial to a smoke sponge, which is what this is. It's just so malleable and comforting <laughs> and like friendly ground. It's got that <laughs> smell. <laughs> Normally, I get I get the bigger blocks. Um, oh, yeah, uh, no, yeah. Normally, I get I get the bricks. These are easier I, to cut, though. Yeah, definitely. For people who like me, like cutting them into smaller pieces and using them mm-hmm. that way, I would probably recommend getting the kind of slim version, uh, which is what we're handling now. Probably what two centimeters thick or something, mm, something like that. Anyway, ish, yeah. Mm, it's got that really nice uh, grippy rubbery feel to it it is quite a rough surface I feel like on the surface of things it is it is so I I would only ever use it on something that can take it yeah yeah of course the thing that surprises me about smoke sponge is how often I will give it a go because sometimes it cleans up something so well I mean that sounds like I tried on absolutely everything that's not the case but you know (laughs) I I, I will still try it if I think that the the surface isn't friable or anything like that you know I I'll, I'll probably give it a go in like a small area to test it mm-hmm. because it's it's a surprisingly versatile yeah. sponge I have to say yeah. it's, it's one of my favourite things mm-hmm. absolutely um, I didn't know until recently that they came in thinner bits 
actually. No. I thought it was only ever the giant blocks. Yeah. But anyway, so obviously because these are called smoke sponge, they are used a lot in fire restoration stuff mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. soot and similar materials off particular paper surfaces and stuff like that. But they are so useful for so many things. Uh, it's it's really good. Good surface area. Yeah. And it. no bits. There are no bits. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Uh, Only if you cut them very badly do you get some bits. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard of some people who try to reuse them and like wash them and stuff like that. Yeah, I've heard of washing them. But I heard that it does not happen as effectively as it might be desired. Oh, okay. Yeah. Really, really enjoy this stuff. What have we got next is Arc Care paper cleaning pads. Mm. Mm. Have you seen this before, Chloe? I... Don't think I know. I ha- oh, these yeah. I have, but only recently. Oh, interesting. So, um, how would you describe these? These are little sacks, <laughs> like little soft fabric sacks. So, in the nineties, I feel that there was a fashion for balloons filled with flour or fine sand or something, and made into little being monster type. Oh yeah, to sell. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I to do. To sell yeah. on the street, they remind me a bit of them because it's basically a, a packed dishcloth. <laughs> yeah, it kind a of packed is. cotton cloth, undyed, unbleached cotton cloth, uh, packed with a very, very fine sand that is a tiny bit coming out of the knit weave of the cloth, and it's sealed at each end. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's like a little soft knit tube. Yeah, that's been sewn up in two ends. And it's like a heavy little pillow. Mm-hmm. It's like a little pillow of cleaning powder. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's supposed to be completely non-abrasive and of archival quality. And I have used these. You have? Yeah, I have used these uh, quite a bit, actually, on artwork. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, not not coloured stuff, like, you know, ink sketched on okay, paper, that yeah. sort of thing. But where it's like, it's really, it's not going to come off or anything. Mm-hmm. But it needs cleaning because it's a bit, you know, sooty or Generally dusty. dusty yeah. yeah. And also on other types of paper mm-hmm. and it's worked a real treat it does get everywhere because the powder does come out mm-hmm. of yeah. all these pores and that's the whole point because they're the ones doing yeah. the cleaning yeah so you end up with a slightly dirtier looking pillow but most of the dirt is carried away by the, uh, the powder that comes out and then you can just get rid of that uh, and oh, also it's okay. just kind of nice to hold mm-hmm. and stuff because obviously it is, it's soft it's pleasing uh, you can kind of wring it to get more or less powder out of it and that's sort of thing. Right. so you can you, you can model it a little mm-hmm. bit and yeah, it's just really good. Uh, it says on the packaging, uh, this paper cleaning pad contains super soft powder that absorbs dirt and dust. Even when the pad appears sold, it does not transfer and never needs washing. And that's an interesting notion to me. Mm. I don't know how many uses you can get out of this. If anyone's done any research into that, I'd love to hear from you because I can't imagine it's actually infinite use. Nothing is infinite use. But you wouldn't want it to be either because it would have residues of potentially yeah. harmful yeah so so i'm kind of curious how long you can safely Mm -hmm. use these because it's quite a large thing and it's because it's a large surface area i can imagine this being very very handy for quick surface cleaning of paper yeah yeah you you do get a a kind of a quick clean. but i feel that it's because you can't break it into bits Mm. you can only get an overall clean you can use a corner of it but then you've got to kind of sort of yeah yeah, that's that's true it's not a precision tool yeah it's not a precision tool i wonder if it's actually just made for i you know fairly robust archival material yeah i mean Um, i'm under the impression that's kind of the case yeah and it gets a good overall clean and then Mm -hmm, i think if you need something a bit more precise you would just use something else yeah oh now what we've got here (laughs) 
is slightly more oh erasery type thing. Oh my god, why was that <laughs> stuck? Right, so these do kind of stick Can I together. Have two? A little bit. Yeah, of course. It's um, like really hard cheese. Yeah, these things look a bit like cheese, and what we're holding now are crepe erasers. They're for adhesive removal. Oh. Um, they're generally the best material for picking up adhesive residue left behind when removing pressure-sensitive tapes. So, uh, seen a, seen as a bit of a must amongst paper conservators. Can also be used for removing excess rubber, cement, and other adhesives. Mm-hmm. Simply cut into smaller chunks for to use for smaller areas. These are intriguing. They are like hard cheese. They really do look like <laughs> hard cheese. They're kind of off-white, but towards the yellowy spectrum. They're weird. If you press them together, even just very lightly, they don't. They're not tacky. There's no surface. No, tack. none at all. But the surface structure does create a sort of. I don't even know if that was. Yeah, that, was yeah that that's audible? like a. Yeah, that's like a. Almost like a velcro like yeah, sound. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit like velcro in the way it yeah, it's, behaves. It has it has this coarse kind of surface mm-hmm. texture, but it's not that rough. It's not like no. sandpaper. No, it's a sort of rubbery coarseness. Yeah, they are tremendously odd. Uh, <laughs> now they're one of the oddest things in here. But, but yeah, these are interesting and strange. I like it. And I look forward to trying them because yeah, uh, same yeah yeah. So this this, this will be an interesting one to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want some of this now. I feel like it's <laughs> the others. I can go. Well, yeah. Well, I might as well use this though. This is this is interesting. Mm. I wonder if it could be used on. I really wonder what kind of rubber this is. Yeah, and what kind of adhesive does? Well, it did say adhesive? it did say tape. So I'm I'm quite intrigued, and I yeah, do, do look yeah. forward to trying this mm-hmm. um, a, a great deal actually. I'm I interested because tape adhesive comes in so many different forms, doesn't it? Because you've got mm. fairly recent fairly still tacky gross and then you've got really really old tape staining adhesive staining that you have no choice but to solvent out really but i'd be interested whether there's a you know a surface clean method what do we have now right what we've got here Mm -hmm. is (gasps) oh that's so smooth (laughs) this is called a foam eraser uh-huh. It's suitable for even the thinnest paper. Just say the paper conservators also grind these erasers down into small particles to make I'm a kind getting, of cleaning I'm powder. I'm getting very, very fine particles off on my hands. Yeah, so and I'm instantly thinking of dust in the lungs. It, it says that they're PVC-free and eraser dust sticks together to make cleanup easy. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay, so we're handling these with our bare hands and we're getting a kind of fine powder on our hands uh, just from touching these. So, but abraded against something, it comes off more so and it does appear to stick together. It sort of clumps. Yeah, okay. Hey. So that really would make it easier to clean like up, wouldn't it? Extremely fine, brittle rubber. Yeah, okay. So it's, it really is. I can't describe to you how incredibly smooth this is. Uh, no, but it's like, it's ungodly. It it's is so it's, smooth. It is ridiculously smooth. It's like polished marble or something, except it's slightly crumbly and dusty. It's slightly dusty, yeah. yeah. I mean, I am appreciating this, actually. You can be extremely gentle with it. It does sort of wear mm-hmm. down very easily, so it's obviously the, the action of the dust that is... I mean, that that would be an interesting... The sort of clumping on the surface there, Jenny, would be an interesting thing to take a photo of as a as a way to yeah. illustrate what this is. I mean, I don't, I don't like anything that makes particulate... <laughs> to be honest, well, then I'm sorry me... I'm subjecting you to this. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, 
I don't want it on my in my lungs. I don't know particularly how much it would aerate, but you know. But then you wouldn't make such a vast quantity, no. would you? There's that's only it, so much that you true. can get in a, yeah. in, a, in an eraser of that size. I that's think. true. <laughs> would you even go through a whole one? I doubt it. I mean, whatever you're doing, would you? True, you'd have small bits of it, wouldn't you? And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. So I think you'd probably be all right. It's but probably it, only in that size, so it's holdable. Yeah, I true. Suspect. But then you'd also need to vac that away, wouldn't you? But then vacuuming it would be easier because you've got the, the clumping. So you could use a very fine brush yeah. to remove that. Yeah. Right, let's see what, uh, what else we have. Oh my God, we've got loads of things. There's loads of things in here. You're very excited. I'm really now, excited. Um, this is just kind of uh, called sponge eraser. I, I have used this before in home improvements. I was going to say... Marked it as magic sponge. Yes. What I'm holding now is what I knew as magic sponge. It's white... <laughs> almost a styrene like mm -hmm. um noise very smooth it's very smooth it's extremely fine and it's really light it's ridiculous like you don't even know that you're holding it that's yeah. how light it is and like you said i've used it in more of a domestic setting because mm -hmm. actually my, my mother-in-law sends me this uh, <laughs> yeah and it's a treat for cleaning the kitchen and like stubborn bits around taps and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I've used it in a domestic setting. Mm -hmm. and I know used that... it at Walmarks. Oh, yeah, nice. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, I already knew that it worked well, but I hadn't seen it in a conservation setting. So uh, I found that really fun. It's relatively cheap. It's, it's something that you don't feel like you have to skimp on. But, but this is one that you should use with water. Uh, I feel. Uh, I've so heard I people feel like sort of <sighs> on it. You know. Oh, interesting. So moisture, mm -hmm. really. And moist, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the instructions here say dampen with clean water, mm -hmm. uh, for example. And and we certainly we don't drench it, but a fair bit of water. So it's something that you should probably use when you when it's something that can take mm -hmm. uh, water near it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a bit of a different one like that. They used it in Ikea to get away scuffs from um, the display things. Oh, I love that you used it in Ikea. Yeah. That's fantastic. So the thing that I read about this at the time, because I was, I was thinking, well, it can't, it's not magic, obviously. What's <laughs> actually happening? We're scientists, it's yeah. not magic. <laughs> What's actually happening here? And essentially, I believe it's a sort of, because it's quite a hard structure, yeah. it's a essentially a sort of sandpapery effect uh, yeah so the surface mm. will be being abraded by yes this. it is an extremely fine sponge yeah. so it's oh, yeah. it's like the finest grade of sandpaper you can find probably i mean something similar mm -hmm. it's it's definitely yeah. not a coarse kind of thing but yeah no. you are you will be abrading something and then the addition of a moisture will yeah. be a sort of lubrication between the two surfaces i imagine yeah so uh also uh, it does say here that it will slowly disintegrate uh, uh -huh. after yeah. use uh -huh. that is true you do have to replace these uh you can get a fair bit of use out of them but it's different in a domestic setting because mm -hmm. you you're of, not going at it as much yeah with yeah exactly yeah. so um uh, it might actually have a, a decent amount of life uh, you can cut it into smaller chunks if you need it to be smaller so it's it's quite versatile like that and uh, it is ridiculously light uh, you can also wash it after use to get a bit more use out of it but again uh, you used with water so pro mm -hmm. and probably not safe with any other kind of solvent i would imagine mm. um i am i'm interested in this i would be interested to know what's going on on a sort of very very fine scale if anyone with a you know electron microscope knocking about fancies having a look at some surfaces with this i'd be very interested to see the result right what we've got next actually comes in their own individual bags so let's um, open them up this is a coarse eraser bar it says it removes ink used for cleaning stains uh, very stubborn surface dirt but it should be used with with caution because it's it is quite coarse 
And interestingly, it says that it, it works the same as a suede leather cleaner. Now, this is to oh. me very interesting. It When it comes out of the bag, immediately it has bits on it. Mm-hmm. And they are quite coarse. It's a bit they like are. it's a bit like solid sandpaper. Yeah, but sort of solid rubbery sandpaper. Yeah, exactly. It looks almost not marbled, but it's it's got a lot of texture to the mm-hmm. look of it. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of grey green. Uh, let's, have a, let's have a rub it against some paper. Yeah, so it's... Yeah, it definitely has these coarse bits coming off it. Oh, can you hear the coarseness of that? Ooh. I'm going to try it on some biro because that's all the thing I've got to hand. Oh, nothing so far. Hey, no, there's something. Yeah, it is. It is. It is working. Oh yeah, that We've is got absolutely paler. Got about ten percent just with that ten percent removal. Hey, yeah. hey, very cool. That was entirely unscientific. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, even so, fun to try. But yeah, so this is this is probably core stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. It does go everywhere, so it would yeah, take a bit of a bit bit of cleaning to to, to get again. So um, oh, oh God, it just flicked all over me. <laughs> back 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 in the bag. Yeah, I can totally see how that would be useful for some things. I look forward to testing that yeah. in a bit more detail because that's I mean, really cool. It is. I'm interested in about how rubbery it is. Yeah, I like that. That is very that's interesting. Pretty cool. Though again. Possibly more of a... These these are all very paper-y, aren't they? Yes, although with some other applications. Yeah, so I think they're pr- primarily stone. developed yeah, um, yeah. for paper and then it has other applications mm-hmm. as well, which is what you'd expect from a racer. <laughs> so the last few were removing stuff off surfaces, weren't they? Yeah, quite. The final thing we have to look at is the rub gum eraser. <gasps> now, let's see what that looks like. And here Ooh. we've got... There you go. Oh, it's like a box of chocolates. Oh, Ooh, it's smooth. Oh, so it's almost exactly like the super smooth. Yeah, it really reminds me of the super smooth. The particulate stuff that's coming off it, mm. the dust that's coming off it, is far more rubbery and clumps much more. Yeah. So it's uh, very smooth, Yeah, but it's more like a rubber. What they say a pell about this is that this it doubles as a non-abrasive eraser and a dry cleaning bar. Mm. Uh, so using gentle pressure, a fine deep cleaning powder is produced, which will absorb and remove dirt, uh, graphite fingerprints uh, from matte board and drawing paper. So again, it's very much a paper-based mm-hmm. product, but it's it does remind me of the other the the finer bar that that yeah that that we had before. I I can see uses for this, even though I don't necessarily work with paper. This is kind mm. of interesting. Though I do feel that some would some that we've looked at so far would be okay with other materials like oh, leather, yeah. but very much stuff that's harder than it mm-hmm. wouldn't work. Yeah, because you you're more just going to be grating away at these. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think it'll be kind of a, a case by case basis yeah. on yeah. these. They, they do they do look a bit like pieces of fudge. Oh, why did you say that? Why? Why is that bad? Fudge now. <laughs> get away from me before I start nibbling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not safe feet. Those are our goodies that we. I'm sent. super excited about all of these. Yeah, so I'm gonna have a bit of a go at uh, trying these in, yeah. in more depth. That will probably be more of an extra, so not something that we put in an, an episode as such. But keep keep your eyes peeled. We will announce it on social media and stuff when that goes up. And basically, uh, not to give too much away, but there might be a small chance of uh, uh, receiving mm-hmm. some of these goodies. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, uh, tune into our next episode. 
the Christmas special to hear a bit more about uh, but yeah so uh, we'll go and try these but now you've heard our kind of spontaneous reactions as uh, object conservators not paper conservators <laughs> to kind of handling these and our instant thoughts hopefully that's been uh, fun or educational or something and if if it turns out you use these regularly and you know exactly how to and what the best applications are we'd love to hear from you get in touch if you have anything to say basically And now for some comments, questions and corrections. Stephanie has emailed us and said uh, in regards to our food episode, Hello! Regarding wedding cake traditions, there is a similar one in the States. Uh, it's tradition to save the top tier of the cake and then eat it on your first anniversary. I think this was probably adapted so if you, if you don't have kids anytime soon or at all, your cake would still be edible. However, my brother and sister-in-law did this only to discover that their cake, which was in the freezer, was coated in mould. Needless to say, they trashed it. Uh, Again, it might have to do with uh, the different types of cakes that are commonly used now as opposed to fruit cakes. Um, Perhaps someone should do a study on cakes and how well they preserve and the best practices for optimal results. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, please, please, please feel free to do that. Yes, definitely do that. Definitely. Uh, thanks for writing in, Stephanie. Um, we also had uh, Bethany write in uh, talking about food management policies, and we'll pop a link to a kind of wiki article uh, that she'd helped compile um, in the show notes. Perfect. Yeah, very nice. listening with the c-word and you've been listening to christina rosaic chloe rumsey and me jenna mathiason join us next time for an episode about christmas in the meantime check out our website at the show tweet us at the c-word podcast or simply email us on the c-word podcast at gmail.com Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.